1 Corinthians chapter 9, looking at the entire chapter and uh, reading the entire chapter from the New International Version this morning. We are in a series called Good News for the Not So Good. And if you were with us for any of the first eight chapters in 1 Corinthians, you'll know what that title is all about because if there was anyone that, uh, that we might look down upon, it might be the Corinthians in sense of, of how they were living their lives and the questions they had for Paul. And uh, the good news is if God had his hand upon them, and he did, uh, he has his hand upon us as well. And so if there's hope for them, there's hope for us in this church today. That's what I'm saying. Today we're going to talk about living life on purpose from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting with verse 1. <clears throat> Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I, might, I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right on the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rites Am I not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me? I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of, the, of my rights in preaching it. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. 
And he says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though, my, though I myself am not under the law, so that as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings." I'm going to pause right there. I'll finish reading this chapter, but then in two weeks, I'll, I'll pick up on chapters 20, uh, chapter 8, verses 24 through 27. Just reading those, but only referring to chapter 24 in today's message. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. I'm not just shadow boxing, Paul's saying. No, I beat my body and make it my slave. So after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So as we're continuing, excuse me, chapter 9, as we're continuing in our series from 1 Corinthians, today we kind of pick up where we left off last week where Paul's talking about the various rights of Christians. And as I said, I read the entire chapter. Uh, I'm not going to refer to the last four verses, maybe verse 25 a little bit, but uh, in two weeks we'll, we'll, we'll finish off this chapter. Uh, next week, just by, by way of announcement, next week we have Teen Challenge with us. And I always look forward to having them with us, hearing the testimonies. I mean, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. I also wanted to challenge you, if you know of anyone who are bound by drugs and alcohol, I would encourage you to invite them to be part of our service next week because of what God's done in these students and they're not all just young people. There's also uh, some older people as well in the program. But invite them to next week's service because it'll be powerful as they share. I am planning on being here. I have uh, my knee revision surgery tomorrow morning. Please keep me in prayer. I'm looking forward to getting that done. Um, I'm tired, as, as some of you are as well, tired of surgeries and whatever. But I uh, uh, just wanted to let you know what's going on then next week. And then a uh, thank you to Mary Lou and the women who are serving them a wonderful meal afterwards. That's not for everybody. It's for Teen Challenge, all right, for next week. So back to our text. You know, Paul just concluded in chapter 8. Uh, discussion of the proper attitudes toward eating meat that was sacrificed to idols in the temples that were there. And it was a very, in our day, it's not a concern, but a very big concern and a significant concern to them in their day. And his discussion on the matter was really about the true nature of, of spirituality. What was true spirituality? And we talked about that last week in length. And really, true spirituality is not based nearly on how, how good you are, but how good you are to others. How do you treat 
other people. How do you treat people you don't have to be nice to? How do you treat the cashier? How do you treat your neighbor? How do you treat the person at school or whatever it might be? How good are you to others? And really this idea of how your actions may affect others carries on into Paul's discussion now in chapter 9. For in this chapter, Paul speaks at great length about his motives for ministry and the principles that guide him. And really, he had all these, quote-unquote, rights as an apostle. No doubt, I mean, quite the, quite the credentials, seeing the Lord Jesus, the risen Christ, would do it for me, you know. But he had all these credentials, all these rights, and yet willing to lay aside these rights for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. And really what Paul says here about his life's work and his life's purpose sheds light on really how we should perceive our own purpose in life and how we should approach our own life's work. That's because we all, all of us, like the Apostle Paul, and I want you to get this, all of us have a calling on our lives. Let that sink in. Every one of us has a calling on our lives, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. See, God doesn't just call pastors or preachers or evangelists or missionaries. You know, they are called by God. Every person in this building this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a calling on your life as well. That being said, turn to your neighbor and tell them you have a calling on your life. Go ahead and do that. You have a calling on your life. Amen. Now this calling on your life might be your job as in you're called to be a teacher or you're called to be a police officer. You're called to be an accountant or a professor, or a nurse, or, or, or whatever. You're, you have a calling. Or it might be in an avocation as in you work in children's ministry, you write, you sing, you play guitar, you play drums, you're involved in outreach, you're involved in this ministry or that ministry or whatever, and so on. I'm just simply saying every calling matters. Your calling matters. Your calling matters. And it must be approached as if it matters. Honestly, your calling matters for all eternity. Because it does. Now, looking at chapter 9, Paul has just finished talking about, as I said, uh, having the right to eat what you want to eat and whatever meat was offered, you know, be it, be it brisket, as we talked about last week, or prime rib or whatever, or if it's broccoli, enjoy that as well. Also looking at uh, Romans chapter 14. But really, Paul is trying to get across to us today the big picture for us to consider and a big picture to consider even for uh, the lives of others that are at stake as well. And so Paul's really making this point as far back as chapter 6 when Paul says all things may be permissible, but not all things are profitable in chapter 6, verse 12. Well, the same idea translates then into chapter 8 and chapter 9 that we're looking at this morning and really Paul's approach to ministry. And Paul begins this chapter 
chapter by reminding them of who he is. He is an apostle. He's had a personal encounter with the risen Lord. and, And really the merit of his ministry can be seen in the Corinthian Christians themselves. Even though he says in verse 2, I may not be an apostle to others, surely I'm an apostle to you. For you are, he says to them, you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And so there were people there that was questioning Paul, questioning his credentials, questioning his, questioning his leadership as an apostle and so. And, and so he's trying to refute basically what they were saying and he goes on to talk about how he has the right like the other apostles to receive his living from the full-time work of ministry that is doing and he says in verse 14 very plainly in the same way the lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel now i haven't taught on this for a long time but there's, this is one reason, honestly, one reason that pastors today need to teach their congregants on the practice of tithing. You know, we tithe to support our spiritual leaders and the work they do. All right, this church has blessed myself and my wife and are generous and have, have taken care of us well. Uh, but it's also why, in turn, I and, and my wife tithe to the Arizona Ministry Network. We tithe to support our leadership and the overall ministry of the Assemblies of God in the state of Arizona as well as in this nation. Now, both the Old and the New Testament teach that those who are engaged in proclaiming God's word should be supported by those who receive spiritual blessing from it. As Paul says, those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But Paul then goes on to say that he hasn't used this right. He has chosen instead to support himself another way. If you recall, Paul is also a tent maker, all right? And he did that so he could serve in the ministry without putting undue financial burden on anyone else besides himself taking care of his own needs. Now, even though it was perfectly acceptable for others to receive a living for the work in the ministry, Paul had the advantage of being able to take a different route. And really, if you read that in the context of chapter 9, it gave Paul great pleasure to do so, not to use that right as an apostle. And really, the driving force behind all of this could be found in what I call some motivational factors or principles of purpose that Paul adhered to, and it kept Paul moving forward through his entire life, even in spite of all the opposition that came his way. And so we're going to look this morning at these purpose-filled principles that help you and I even today to keep us moving forward as well in ministry, in life, in our calling, in our purpose. It doesn't matter where you're at in your journey. I mean, you might, you may, may have been a believer for 50 years or for five months or for five days. It doesn't matter how many candles you have on your birthday cake, all right? Uh, these principles will guide you and me to the finish line. Friends, I want the church of Jesus Christ to finish well. 
Not just to finish, but to finish strong. And so these principles will help us do that. So whether you're on the first lap or on the track, or you have the finish line and goal, and you're on your last lap and you're saying, I can't wait to cross that line. If you will adapt these three principles into your life's calling and pray about them and pursue them with your whole heart, God's going to help you and me make it with, with flying colors, if you will, past that finish line. The first thing is this. Number one, we, we, you and I, need to seek a calling that compels us. A calling that compels you. I once heard of a relationship guru say that the key to a fulfilling marriage is not just to find someone you can get along with, but to find someone you can't get along without. Have you ever heard that? Now, I don't know if that's how it works. Joan, I've been married for 39 years, and I couldn't get along without her. I get that part of it. But I do know that's how it works in our life's calling. In other words, the objective is to find something that you can't not do. I came to faith in Jesus Christ on February 20 of 1983. It was 40 years ago this past February. And many of you heard my testimony, so I won't go into that today. But shortly after I got saved, it was the summer of 83, spring of 83, I went to the pastor I got saved under, Pastor Steve Eastman, and I really felt this tugging in my heart that I was called to do what I'm doing. And I said, Pastor Steve, how do you know God's called you? How do you know God's called you to be a pastor? And I'll never forget how he answered my question. He said, Brian, if there is something else you can do, do it. If there's something else you can do, do it. But if not, and if this keeps on coming back to you, you know because you know because you know God's calling you to pastor. If there's something else you can do, in other words, Make sure this is God. And if it's God, it's going to keep on coming back and keep on coming back. And, and that was true for me. It was something, in other words, it was something that I can't not do. That's exactly what Paul was saying to, to the church at Corinth about his life's work. He says, for when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Then he says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. You see, the greatest gift you could ever receive would be a calling in which you say, woe to me if I don't fulfill what I sense God's calling me to do. Let's break that down in practice today. Woe to me if I'm not the best parent in the history of parents, the best godly parent example to my kids. Woe to me, this is for me, if my garden doesn't overflow each year to, to the point where I am able to secretly slip into your car after service before you realize it bags of vegetables, all right? Uh, woe to me if I don't write. Woe to me if I don't sing or if I don't play guitar, if I'm not leading worship. Woe to me if I don't use the gifts that God has blessed me with to be a blessing to others. Woe to me if I don't live my life to the glory of God and for the purposes of God. 
See, that's what it's about for you and for me. See, when you and I have a calling that compels us, rewards and remuneration tend to take a back seat because it's really about the calling, it's about the work, it's, and the work itself becomes its own reward. See, I love, I personally love what God has called me to do. God's called me to preach his word. I am a preacher at heart. I, I, I look at people and I can't help but wonder, like in the airport, out in the public arena, wherever it might be, how many people here are saved? How many people here know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? How many people are going to heaven and not to hell? You, you know what I'm saying? That's how I see people. That's how I want to approach people, whatever. I am called to preach his word. It's all about eternity to me. It's all about how, where people will spend their eternity, either in heaven or in hell. And guess what? There's no in-between. I even thought about, and Jill and I have had this conversation, and we haven't made up our minds yet, but I thought about what I would want on my gravestone should we have gray, you know, plots and gravestones versus be cremated and spread my ashes in the mountains somewhere. You know what I'm saying? And, and if I had a gravestone, here's what I want on my gravestone. Preacher of the gospel. That's it. Preacher of the gospel. You know, it's like, that's what God's called me to do. That's what I'm compelled to do. Now, today, we have a lot of people in places of, of entertainment and, and book writing and, and doing whatever. And uh, I'll just say it this way. Stephen King clearly doesn't write stories for the money. Jerry Seinfeld doesn't tell jokes for the money. Uh, the late Jimmy Buffett clearly didn't perform music for the money, although I read in the last few weeks that he did die a billionaire and had a good business sense about him with his Margaritaville trademark and empire. I just read this past, like two weeks ago, where Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones, 80 years old, just releasing a new record. It's like, Retire, would you? You know, it's, I don't know, but these, the old rockers just, just floor me. But these individuals who each have had more money they can possibly spend have continued to pursue their life's work past the traditional age of retirement. Even our senators, even our congressmen, for God's sake, retire, most of you. You know what I'm saying? It was not meant to be a lifelong job. It, go in and serve a term and get back to work and don't have all these lifelong benefits. There's my public service announcement, and I approve that message. But I'm just saying a lot of people do what they do because they don't need the money. They just like doing it. They, they love doing what they do. And it's also, though, significant to note that as successful as they are, their work amounts to what Paul refers to later in the chapter to perishable wealth, a crown that will not last. Friends, it's only temporary, and someday it's going to be all but forgotten. Our work, on the other hand matters for all eternity. Think about that. Why? Because our work is built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our work is focused on serving others in his name. Our work is to see lives changed and transformed for all eternity. In other words, what we do, we do to get a crown that will last forever. A crown. And I don't know about you, but I've said this before. I want the biggest, 
most ornate crown that there is. I want my crown to have the most jewels in it that any crown has ever had. Because when I get my crown, I want to place it at Jesus' feet. I want to kneel before him with new knees. And I want to say, Jesus, this is all for you because of what you've done for me. I don't want to hand him a Burger King paper crown. I want the most ornate, jeweled crown that can be made because I want the best for him. You know what I'm saying? Because of our life's work, I am compelled. You know, seek that good work which you are compelled to do. As in, woe is me if I don't do what God's called me to do. Here's my question for us this morning. Our next point one. What are you compelled to do? What are you compelled to do? Only you can answer that. But hopefully, you understand there's a calling. There's a calling on each of our lives. There's a calling in your life. And hopefully it compels you. Second purpose-filled principle. Number two, look for ways to adapt to every individual. Paul says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. He goes on to say to the Jews, he becomes like a Jew observing the law. To the Gentiles who do not follow Jewish rituals, he becomes like a Gentile. Even to those who are weak, he lays aside his rights to, accom to accommodate their weakness. And then he says this in verse 22, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Now, I'm not talking about, and he's not talking about compromising the message of the gospel itself. The message that says Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. On the third day, he was raised from the dead. And if you repent of your sins and you put your faith in him, he'll deliver you from your past life and give you new life in him. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. See, Paul never lost sight of this message. But in effect, Paul is saying, if there is any flexibility I can bring to these peripheral, non-fundamental matters, I will make that move because it's about souls being saved. That's what he's saying. Now, back in the 60s, a number of courageous, groundbreaking churches began to modify their approach to ministry in order to reach a new generation. And they relaxed their dress code standards. I had someone tell me this morning, looking at me, it's like, you don't look like a pastor. And I said, thank you. <laughs> when I first came here, I'd wear a suit and tie. And then I had another fellow pastor in the, in the intersection say, Brian, how many people in your church are wearing suit coats and ties? And I said, maybe one or two. Pastor Milton always did. Larry always does. Jimmy Christensen always did. And so I said, there's a few there. He says, realize you're in Arizona. It's hot. And people don't dress up as much as they used to. Now, I'm good with that. I don't know if you are, but I sure am. I like, I like nice shirts and, and whatever, and, and I try to wear decent pants. Uh, I'm not, I, I refuse to buy pants. Sorry, young people. I refuse to buy pants with holes in them. 
I put holes in them myself by wearing them out, all right? And my wife has even patched. I have a pair of patched blue jeans that I wear when I'm using my chainsaw and log splitter because they get really, really dirty and oily and greasy and messy or whatever. But, but I like wearing nice clothes, but I'm glad that dress codes have been relaxed somewhat uh, with, with church, all right? And, and uh, uh, I'll just leave it there. But uh, back in the 60s, they opened the door to the new styles of music. They even adapted their vocabulary in order to rephrase ancient truth in a more modern way that, that a modern mind could understand and comprehend. And the result was that there was a lot of people, millions turning to Christ and, and, and began to live their lives for him or return to him and live their lives for him. How many of you saw this past year the movie The Jesus Revolution? That's what I'm talking about. The Jesus Movement, early 70s, late 60s. Uh, if you even go back to uh, uh, back in the 80s, when Rick Warren started Saddleback Community, Valley Community Church in the 80s, his approach was to design the services that would appeal to a category of people he identified as seekers, those who were interested in spiritual things and yet had not yet fully committed to Christ. And as a result of his seeker-friendly approach, uh, he was torched through his, his own denomination as well as other people in other denominations, at least at first he was. Uh, came under a lot of scrutiny until people began to see the fruits of his labor and then his methods became a model for many to follow. And he used to say this, it takes, I like what he says, it takes all kinds of people, excuse me, it takes all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. Think about that, it, it does. You know, we're not the church for everyone and the church down the road is not the church for everyone. I get all that. But Rick didn't expect every church to be a carbon copy of his and he certainly didn't claim that Saddleback was the perfect church. But his attitude was this, hey, if we can be flexible in these non-essential areas while remaining faithful to the message of the gospel, then let's do what we can in order to win more people to Christ. Overall, I like that, all right? See, here's how this approach applies to our own life's purpose. In order for you and I to have influence in the lives of those around us, we need to be ready to adopt our efforts. Another way to say it is this. We must be willing to throw ourselves into the interests of others and to connect with them on their wavelength. Try to understand, as I said last week, where others are coming from. In his commentary on this passage, William Barclay wrote, he says, the man who can never see anything but his own point of view and who never makes any attempt to understand the mind and heart of others will never make a pastor or an evangelist or even a friend. And so what are we doing? We're trying to figure out what makes that person tick. You know, where, where is that person at? And the question we should be asking at every turn is, how can I be more accommodating to the people that God has placed in my life so they'll, so they'll in return be more receptive to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? See, it's our job, if you will, to bend for others. Years ago I read this, Blessed are the flexible, for they shall bend and not break. Now, we may be free, we may be independent, and we may be our very own boss in every way. 
but we must be willing to bend to accommodate, to give ourselves, as I said last Sunday, in sacrifice to meet the needs of people. Please keep in mind as I'm going through this that I'm not, I'm not talking about compromising the message of the gospel. Those that know me know that's true. All right, as we've heard it said, the gospel is meant to change the sinner, not the sinner to change the gospel to suit their sin. And I say amen to that, but I also maintain that we, you and I, should look for ways to adopt to every individual. Not to, not to say, yeah, accept your sin and you can keep on in your sin. No, to call people to repentance, yes. But to say, what makes you tick? How can I be more effective in trying to understand where you're coming from? Number two, here's the third purpose-filled principle. Number three, run your race with the intent to win. Run your race with the intent to win. If I was to rephrase that, it would be this way. Keep your focus on the finish line. Keep your focus on the goal. Verses 24 through 27 of this chapter says a lot about this, and we'll cover that in an entire message in two weeks and we'll focus on those four verses. But in today's final point of this message, we're going to take a sneak peek at the first part of this passage where Paul says in verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Then he says this, Run in such a way as to get the prize. In other words, run to win. Run to finish. He's talking about pursuing excellence in everything. It's the way we strive for holiness, the way we reach out to others, the way we live for Jesus. In other words, Paul's words echo the words of Solomon. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Ecclesiastes 9.10. See, every now and then, Christ followers ought to take what I call a mediocrity check. In other words, is there an area of responsibility that I'm only approaching half-heartedly? Is there something I could be doing better? Am I giving my all? Have, having put my hand to the plow, am I now looking back? You know, has someone cut in on my race? That's what Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, Galatians 5, 7. He says, you are running a good race, but who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? See, here's the thing. You can fake a lot of things in life, but you can't fake your commitment and your dedication to Jesus Christ. Amen? You know the genuine, you know the real versus the posers. All right. Dr. Howard Hendricks, who was one of my, from a distance, mentors when I was younger, a younger Christian in Christian education, he was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for many, many years. And the way he came across and taught and, and would have students learn, he, just, he was phenomenal at what he did. But he said this, I have never met a Christian, Dr. Howard Hendricks, I have never met a Christian who sat down and planned to live a mediocre life. 
But if you keep going in the direction in which you are moving, you may land there. In other words, a wake-up call. Are you serving God half-heartedly? Or are you giving your all? Former NFL coach George Ellen had a sign on his desk to serve as a daily reminder to stay focused. The sign said, Is what I'm doing right now taking me closer to my ultimate goal of winning? Ask ourselves, am what I'm doing right now taking me closer to finishing my race and finishing well? I have this picture, this plaque on my wall in front of me. It's on my wall in front of my desk, right over here. And Alvin made that for me a few years back on his CNC machine with one word on it, eternity. Every time I'm at my desk, I look up and I see this plaque, eternity. And it reminds me every week of why I'm doing what I'm doing. Once again, this is for keeps. It's for eternity. So here's a question we should ask ourselves. Am I moving in the direction I want my life to go? And am I doing so with a sense of urgency? Am I moving in the direction... I want my life to go, and am I doing so with a sense of urgency? On Leonard Ravenhill's gravestone, another one of my mentors from a distance, reading his books and watching his videos, on his gravestone he asks this question, are the things you are living for worth Christ dying for? Are the things you're living for worth Jesus dying for? What are you living for? In two weeks, we'll talk more about living a disciplined, focused life. But in today's message, it really begins with a commitment to live our lives in pursuit of excellence in the calling you and I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. Think about Paul for a moment. Paul's life could have been quite different than it was. It could have been a lot easier than it was. I mean, he could have stayed home, he could have traveled less, but he had rather take the gospel in the new territory and preach the gospel where it's never been preached before. He could have traveled with a wife, but he chose to remain single so he'd be less distracted in his work. He could have earned an income for his efforts, but he chose to work in the ministry for free, making tents on the side so as not to burden any church. His life could have been a lot easier. But he said this in verse 23, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, so that, that I may share in its blessings. Well, what blessings is he talking about? Observing firsthand the miracle of changed lives. When you see someone's life turned around for Christ, it'll grip your heart. You'll want to say, who's next? All right, who's next, God? Uh, seeing up close what God can do to the lives of others. I mean, seeing the miracle, seeing the transformed lives, seeing people come to Christ. This was all the reward for his work, the blessings to share in. Now, none of us are called to be the Apostle Paul, but we're all called. 
We established that to begin with. And we can live our lives according to the same principles that Paul lived his life as well. In other words, we can seek, you and I can seek to be compelled. In other words, we can ask God to make his calling so crystal clear and so dear to our hearts that we cannot not do it. We can learn to adopt our lives for the good of others. In other words, learning to be all things to all people. Friends, get used to it. Sinners sin. It's what sinners do. It's what I did, and I was very good at it. So are some of you. So don't let sinners sin bother you. All right? Be willing to say, hey, if I can change my approach in such a way that it will benefit the lives of others, I'm going to make that adjustment. Why? Because souls are at stake. Lives are at stake. And then we can choose to run our race with excellence. In other words, we can choose to take this calling we have received and do it with the very best of our ability. Now, yes, we rely upon the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I cannot do what I do without the anointing, without God helping me. And that anointing is also there in my study. Whether it's teaching or parenting or gardening or singing or leading worship or taking care of somebody else, we can all pursue our calling with excellence, doing it as unto the Lord. See, this is what it looks like to live your life on purpose, on point. How many would say this morning, you know, Pastor, through this message, Holy Spirit's been talking to me. And in response to that, I need to ask him to make some changes in my life. Let's all stand to our feet. How many would sense this morning the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you and talking to you about your calling? Talking to you about adapting maybe some of your methods or pursuing excellence and running the race to win, to cross that finish line. And how many be honest enough to say, you know, God's been talking to me about this and I need to be honest, Pastor, I need to make some changes in my life. If that describes where you're at right now, I'm going to ask you where you're standing. Just put your hand up and say, I need to make some changes in my life. May God help me to do that. Just put your hand up, put it back down again. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning and ask God to help us with those changes that don't always come easy but are necessary to get us to the next level that God wants us to be in. So, Father, this morning, God, as we bow our heads before you, as we pray, we, we look to you right now and we thank you for your calling on our lives. Every one of our lives has a calling. Thank you for that. And God, I pray that, you, that, that we would pursue that calling with due diligence, saying, woe unto me if I don't do this. I can't help but do this. And God, I pray that they become so real and so clear in the hearts and minds of every people that they would say, God, here I am. As Isaiah said, God, send me. God, here I am. God, God I'm, be, I'm, I'm ready to be used of you. And then with that calling comes many times that cleansing. God, take the coal from the altar and touch my lips.
God, do that new work in my life. Holy Spirit, you've been speaking to our hearts today. And I know many hands went up. And God, I pray in response that you would allow, that we would allow you to make those changes in our lives. God, we would not be content just playing church, playing the games. But God, we'd be sincere about you and about your purpose, about your calling, about your kingdom, about eternity. So touch hearts today, God. The hands that went up, God, change lives. God, as we surrender ourselves to you, help us to pursue our calling with excellence. Help us, Father, to run the race to win and to go after that crown that will last forever. That crown that I talked about earlier that we can place ultimately at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, it's all for you. It's all about you. God, help us. As Jonathan Edwards prayed, as I mentioned a few weeks back, that you would stamp eternity on our eyeballs, that we be eternity conscious day in and day out, knowing that this is all for keeps. God, I pray for those who have come this morning that do not know you, that do not have a love relationship with you. May today be their day of salvation. May, the, may today be their day of, of repenting of their sin and coming clean before you, seeing God, you're tugging at my heart, and today I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I want to repent of my sin. If that describes where you're at this morning in your journey uh, to, to become a Christian or, or to be a Christian, and God's speaking to your heart, I want, yeah, I'm just going to ask you to put your hand up and say, Pastor Brian, I want to make sure that I'm spending eternity in heaven. I need to repent of my sin today. I need to get right with God. And if that describes where you're at, just slip your hand up, put it up high. Today is my day of salvation. Today is my day of making a commitment to Jesus Christ, of repenting of my sin, of getting right before God. I want to give you opportunity to respond. Because when it comes down to it, I don't want anyone pointing a finger at me someday and say, Pastor, preacher, you never told me. You never told me. Today is your day of salvation. Now is the time. Tomorrow is only a day on a fool's calendar. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. Today is the day. And if that describes where you're at or not at and want to be at today, and God's speaking to your heart, just put your hand up and say, today is my day of repenting of my sin and getting right before God. I'm trying to make this as clear as possible. Father, I just pray now your blessing upon your people. I pray, God, that you would take the words that I shared this morning and apply them to our lives so we doers of your word and not just hearers, I ask in Jesus' name. And God, I pray blessing upon your people. God, that you would burn this message in our hearts knowing that we are all called. We all have a calling. There are principles that we can live by and rights that we can lay aside as Paul laid aside his rights as an apostle for the sake of others. Lord, help us to learn and to live this out in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today. just want to remind you once again, we have an hour of prayer from 6 to 7 tonight. Next week, Teen Challenge will be with us. Once again, if you could keep me in prayer tomorrow morning, I go in for another knee surgery. Appreciate you, love you, and God loves you even more. Have a blessed week in the Lord. If you would like prayer for something, I'll be available at the altar to pray for you and to pray with you. God bless you.